there. He is not silent. And he's spoken, and, and you have 39 books of the Old Testament. It's a record of God speaking in history, moving in history, and not abandoning us, walking with us, depart, uh, separating the waters of the Red Sea, speaking to his people with Moses and the law. You have God giving them temple and sacrifice, all pointing to something greater, to this Messiah who is to come. And you have this record constantly that Jesus is coming. Now, his name wasn't referred to as Jesus he was just the anointed one, the Messiah, the Deliverer. But more importantly, are you ready for this? The King was coming. God the King was coming. They knew that God was going to once and for all deal with the sin of humanity. That He was going to deal with our alienation from Him. He wasn't just going to leave us in darkness. God did not uh, set the world into motion and go wandering off leaving his creation. But while we're the rebels drinking in darkness, we're the ones that are the haters of God. We're running from God. God is condescending. God is actually active in history. He is imminent. He is transcendent and he is other very and he is, he is and he's his word through his prophets in the scriptures of the Old Testament and it's his constant testimony. God is going to deal with our alienation from Him. He's going to deal with our sin. He's going to deal with our death. He's going to deal with the King is coming. That's what was anticipated. God was coming as King to save His people from their sin. Have in the Old Testament, Jesus, His entire life on display. And I don't mean just sort of like um, vague concepts of some very great prophet and teacher. But you have the specificity of Jesus when he's coming, who he is, God himself in the flesh, the king is coming, how he's going to die, that he's going to die and rise from the dead, where he's going to be born, when this is going to be accomplished, and even a bookend in Daniel chapter 9 that the Messiah is going to accomplish all of this before that second temple is destroyed, and it was destroyed in 70 A.D. So the early church, amazingly, has the revelation of God, Him working in history, it's just before them. And listen to this, there's about 400 years of silence after the last book of four... It's, oh, I'm so excited. Okay, it's not just a Bible. It's not just a Bible. It's hand-sewn in the Netherlands. This is what I do, I just smell it constantly. No, admit it, we take it for granted because here we have, I mean, this is an amazing Bible. It's hand sewn on the edges. It's goat, it's goat skin. It's goat skin, not just leather. It's goat skin. And the edges are like this amazing gold and red and, and there's room to write notes in and it, the whole thing is right there in front of me. And we take it for granted. We just take it for granted. I and mean, we have, you guys, we have an eye pods and iPads and where our smartphones are getting like 50 translations right now push of a button some of you guys are following this right now on your phones it's crazy it's just it's it's crazy we just totally we take advantage of it and we don't think about the fact that in before Jesus walked among us before God came they're in synagogue and all they know is they go to synagogue and they're just they're they're learning the promises and Messiah's coming the Messiah is coming. He's going to deal with our death. He's going to deal with our sin. Once and for all, He's going to bring the nations to Himself. This Messiah is coming with a kingdom. God's coming. He's coming to deal with our sin. He's going to reconcile us to Himself. The Messiah is coming. The Messiah is coming. And you're in the Sabbath. And, and, and it's amazing because you didn't even have the Bible at home necessarily. If you wanted to go study the Bible, where would you go? It's a synagogue. And you would listen to it. 
And you would memorize it together as a community. And all you know is you have these promises and He's coming. And then here we have today, 2,000 years after Jesus, we're sitting here with the whole, the whole thing. It's right in front of you. It's the Word of God. And in, in the early church, they made sure <clears throat> that they put Matthew right after that, for that last book of the Old Testament. You've got this glorious testimony of God, 400 years of silence in the early church, very much sort of like putting their chest up and their chin up is like, and there's Matthew. You're welcome. <laughs> and Matthew opens up in a really amazing way. It doesn't just open up and just tell the eye what he's very much he's trying to explain. They were waiting for the king, and it was specific. Like the Messiah, all of the depth of the Messiah was already written down. You can't just come and say, I'm the Messiah. It's not possible. You had to fit the bill. And the bill was very specific. It was very detailed. And Matthew opens it not just to tell you the eyewitness testimony of Jesus, but to actually offer an apologetic. To actually offer you truly Messiah. How do you know? Let's start at the bottom. Who does he have to be a descendant of? Abraham. Who does he have to be a descendant of, uh, of David? Matthew does is he opens his gospel. To us, it's like, well, I can go without that. I mean, honestly, think on it for a second. You see the commercials come up on television for that uh, website. What's it called? Trees. What's it called? Com. Like, huh? Thirty days. Great. Twenty-nine days. I'll be there. And then off. Right? We don't even care. Neology. Does it even matter? I mean, like most of us, like we don't even know where we're from. We're a bunch of mutts, and we're like, whatever. I don't know. I got like one percent Indian in me. Like it would be like five percent this. What? You don't even know. You don't care. You don't care. And it was, it was important to them because they understood that to, to genealogy was important because God kept His faithfulness on display through the record of genealogy. Because here's the cool thing, ready? are you ready for this? You can manipulate and control what's going on in your history, your life. You can, right? Like what happens in your life. You can do certain things, not do certain things. You can in a way control that, but you know what? You can't control history as after and the amazing thing about Matthew is a sovereign God. And the early church was very much proud of the Jesus. They didn't want to miss it. Because they could chapter and verse where Messiah had to look like this and how Jesus fits the bill. We were waiting for a king and the king entered history. The early church wanted to make sure when you got your Bible and you opened it up to Matthew, you understood that God keeps his promises. And you understood, and we're going to see this in a moment, that God brings beauty out of ashes. And a lot of us, we look at our lives and our histories and say, oh, I had a bad dad. I had a bad mom. And I, my grandpa was a drunk. He's this and that. You know, I, and we, we, we typically, we want to blame our dad or our grandparents or whatever for our upbringing and our history. We think I'm a wreck and that's all there is to it. It's just what's been dealt to me. And you see in the genealogy of Jesus that not only is God sovereign, but He brings beauty out of ashes. And you've got some seriously wrecked, messed up people in this list. And they're there, almost like it's proud. It's amazing. How many of us would want to admit to like being uh, like Jeffrey Dahmer's son? Right? You know, you know, like you don't go around bragging about that. Like, you know, tell me where you come from. Oh, Jeffrey Dahmer's my uh, my dad, right? But what's crazy about this list is it's mentioned. You've got adulterers. You've got incest. You've got, in a way that's essentially on a level of, for different races, you've got mixed breeds and halvesies in the list. <laughs> right? 
But it's there. It's there for you to see. It's there for you to cherish. It's there for you to rejoice in. Because you have before you in, ge in this genealogy the record of God's faithfulness. It's an amazing thing. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 9, Psalm 105, 8, Exodus 20, verse 6. God calls Himself the covenant-keeping God. You know what? Put it this way. You look at this list, and not only should it get you so excited about Jesus as Messiah, not only should it firm up your confidence in Him, but you're supposed to see in this list, in these genealogies, that God does how dark it looks, no matter how impossible it seems, nothing is impossible. With he takes the ugliest and He makes them beautiful. He takes the heals them. He redeems those who were in slavery and He will never, ever fail you. Not ever. That's what this genealogy should shout to you. It's a glorious thing. Because you see, someone can come along today and say, I'm Mashiach, I am the Messiah. And you can laugh <laughs> and laugh because there is no way at this point in history to actually trace your genealogy through David and Abraham back to Adam. It can't be done. What did in history is deposit for us the genealogies before they all essentially disappeared. Promise. You can depend on Him. That's what this shouts to you. You look at your life and you say, I'm losing so much today. I don't have any money. I'm losing a car. I've lost relationships. Wreck right now. And you look at God's promises and they seem so far-fetched. Admit it. Romans 8.28. Pompous. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love Him. All things. All things. The death of a loved one. The loss of finances. My job. All things. God does here in Matthew. All things. Also love him. He keeps his promise. He keeps supposed to shout to you. The early church wanted to act that Jesus was the promised Messiah and deliverer, and they put his genealogy up front and in your face. You need to see this. This God keeps his promises, and that's why it was always first. Matthew's gospel, no matter where the other ones are mixed up, Luke and John and Mark, wherever they were in the list, and what was they We are the descendants of Abraham. Amen. You know the song, right, kids? You know it? Father Abraham had many sons, many sons. Come on, kids. Birds, holler, let's go. Come on. We love that. We are the descendants of Moses first that brought the Gentiles in. Prove that Jesus see character of man constantly. What is not to last? The of Jesus is not a that drops out of the sky and already done. Oh, like, what's that? Sort of like the Wizard of Oz, right? I said, like, just kind of comes out of the sky and it squashes people as, as it, there it is, sort of, that's this new house that came out of the sky. What's this all about? But the story of Jesus in the Old Testament is more like that building that you pass by every single day. Construction. The foundation is laid one day and you drive by. And then the next thing you know, and then there's walls put up. And the next thing you know is there's siding and there's a roof and then there's windows and then there's paint being applied. That's the story of Jesus. And Matthew, if you look just in Matthew, you'll know one, look at the first thing in verse 23. First thing quoted, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call him his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Who's it quoting from? Isaiah. Matthew's showing you, Jesus you first verse. Look, he's, and then it goes in chapter 2, getting into verse from Michael Bethel, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. What's Matthew doing? He said, this is one, like plan B is now, this is plan A. 
This is the story that is constantly testified Jim Slur, the founder, that your names and my name was written in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation. His story. And God is just showing us now that house is done and you can actually get in it now. We're not waiting anymore. If I could give you one word of encouragement before we move on to the beauty of this text that's going to, I think, going to shock you, is don't tell us. Don't become to what you do. They know their sin is not dealt with. You're in church the animals. Playing your God <coughs> of the fact that you've got sin that's not dealt with ultimately. Every year, Yom Kippur, every year a new sacrifice reminding you of your sin and some animal displaying, taking sin and, and dying, innocent for guilty. There's none of that. You sit here in a room on a Sunday night and there's none of that. There's no veil. There's no priest with a rope around his waist. There's no, there's no holy... It's just, it's just this. You have bold and confident access to God. Jesus has once and for all dealt with our sin and He's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him. Don't take advantage of it. I mean, look, you just cherish this. The early Jews were just waiting and here we are, we have it right in front of us, done. Now, what's our job now? We have to go tell people. He's come. He's the king. He's reigning and he's seated. He's putting all his enemies under his feet. There is eternal life and forgiveness in his name. Turn from your sin and trust in Christ. It's done. And you know as a believer now, it's all complete and done. You have eternal life. There's nothing to wait for. Nothing else. There's life in his name now. It's right there in front of you. Love this text. Cherish it. I gave my son this week, Sage, I gave him a new Bible. Mine fell apart, and so I, long story, I gave him a Bible. And I said to him as I gave the Bible to him, I said, don't forget, your brothers and sisters and my brothers and sisters, many of them died so you can have these words. They died so you can have these words. Not just God's Word. Think about what God did in time to preserve this text for you. And here we sit with this record of God's faithfulness. Now here we go, ready? The book of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. What's that testify to you? You should see it as ready. Jesus is, is in this story, the genealogy of Jesus is the record of God's faithfulness. It's the record of the covenant-keeping God. Jesus is Messiah. He's the promised one. Now when it says, son of David, that means he is the ready, you can write this down, the long-anticipated king. And when it says son of Abraham, it, is, it means it represents he is the long-anticipated seed. And I want to explain that to you. If you look in your Bibles, go to 1 Samuel chapter 8. 1 Samuel chapter 8. Old Testament. 1 Samuel chapter 8. Now, just make the reference a point in your Bibles. Know, know something. that This is a record in 1 Samuel chapter 8 of the fact that Israel wanted to have a king over them like the other nations. Now, many of you guys know this because we've discussed it many times. What is God's response to Israel and they're, they're wanting a king over them like the other nations? What is it? He gave them a king as what? Punishment. Here they are. They have, he's given them his law. He's condescended, given, given them his grace. And they want a king. 
You look at all of human history and every people group to rule over them like the other nations. They want someone to tell them what the law is and they want someone in charge. They need someone over them to control and everything else. And God says when they want a king, they're rejecting me because I'm their king. And so what does that testify to you immediately? What? That God is the king. And what he does is he gives them Saul. And then after Saul, who comes next? Think about it for a second. Human beings were like, give us the Messiah. Give us the anointed one. Give us the king over us that will tell us how it is. That will rule over us in perfection. And God's like, well, actually, I'm the king, and so that's sinful. So I'll go ahead and give you Saul. And what he's going to do is he's going to take your kids to war. He's going to attack and everything else. And God, so here's Saul. And people are like, well, Saul was, wasn't working out so well. So who goes after Saul? David. And they're like, great, we got David. And David, just be honest, he's pretty awesome, right? It was David and Goliath, he's a bomb. I love David. I do. I love him. Glory. He's awesome. Glory. I love him. David's awesome. Killing the Philistine with a stone in the head. I love, I love just his courage. He's like, who is this uncircumcised Philistine coming against the armies of the living God? I like that. When I read that, I get chills on my backside. I'm like, yes. I love it. He's awesome. But... He has David, woman bathing, and then he commits adultery. Not working out so well for you, having a king, is it? Line keeps going, going, going. What do you discover the whole entire time? Is that God is the perfect king. We don't need a human king to rule over us and tell us what to do. We have freedom and we have God as king. And what God says in 1 Samuel chapter 8, ready? My people wanting a king over them like the other nation is what? Sinful. Because who's the king? God's the king. And that should testify something to you right away. And I want you to hook this in your mind right now. Grab this. God said his people wanting a king was sinful because he was their king. But something's going on. He told them that he was going to bring a kingdom and a king that would last forever. What does that testify to you right away? To want besides me is sinful. And yet I'm bringing a kingdom and a king to rule over you forever. Who is it? God. God's coming as the king. That was the promise. So the fact that Jesus is son of David displays that, ready? He was the long-anticipated messianic king. God promised to send through David's line a Messiah. A then following that is son of Abraham. Now we sing the song. It's a goofy song, but admit it, it's catchy and you like it, right? <laughs> Father Abraham, his sons had fought. Look Right arm, left arm, right foot. It's on because we are the descendants of Abraham. And for Matthew to open the genealogy with, look, this is the Messiah. He is the son of David. He has the right to the throne. And he is the son of Abraham. Every Jewish little boy and little girl, their ears perk up. Immediately you, you go, what's happening in history? What's happening? <coughs> God's showing up. Now, these kids were raised, and they're hearing the story constantly. Abraham was an old man, and Abraham couldn't have kids, and Sarah was his wife, and God came to Abraham. Genesis, read the stories. Genesis 13, Genesis 15, Genesis 17 and 18. God comes to Abraham, and it's Abram, and he says, you should be called Abraham, which means father of many, which was like, ha! Huh? That's hilarious. Abraham's an old dude. He's like 100 years old. Ain't got no kids. Ain't got no time for that. No kids. And his wife, 
she's old, and they both laugh at God. God says, I'm going to give you an heir. It's going to be Isaac. And they're laughing. Abraham's laughing at God. Sarah laughs at God. I love the part two where Sarah laughs at God. Read it. Genesis, the story runs from 13 to 18. I love the story. His wife's in the room. The angel of the Lord, the messenger of the Lord comes. He's like, you're going to have a son within the next year. And Sarah's like, huh? <laughs> and God's like, why'd you laugh? And she's like, I didn't laugh. He's like, yes, you did laugh. <laughs> Don't debate with God. That's just silly. There's a lot of absurd things we can do. And one of those is like actually telling God, no, I didn't. <laughs> Don't do that. But you're a little Jewish boy and girl, and you're raised in synagogue. You hear these stories. Abraham actually had a son. He's an old, decrepit dude. And he has a kid. Isaac is his name. And the amazing thing is, is they jumped the gun a bit, didn't they? Abraham doesn't believe God ultimately at first, neither does Sarah. And then in Genesis 15, 6, it says that Abraham believed God and God, and God credited to him with impossibility. I'll believe you, God. I trust you. I'm going to have an heir. And God made a covenant with him. And God gave to him Isaac and not Ishmael. He jumped the gun with Sarah saying, look, I'm old, I'm kind of decrepit, I ain't got no hair, okay, so go with Hagar, get my bond servant, get with her, have a kid. And then Hagar, it's kind of a weird situation, it's worse than like TLCs, like sister wives, it's crazy, okay. And cause she's a slave and then she has a kid, and what happens with women, right? She's like, she's like, hey, like, go with her, have this, the kid. And then the woman gets pregnant and now there's jealousy between the women, right? Because now she was actually pregnant. And like, she couldn't get pregnant. So now they're like eyeballing each other like, mm. like constant stink eye going on in Abraham's house because of this situation. Yes. But that's what God says. It's not Ishmael. It's the son that I promised you. That Isaac, through Isaac, descendants are going to be like the stars. More numerous than the stars and like the sand. You can't even count it. You can't even imagine what I'm going to do. Through Isaac, through Isaac, through Isaac. And then the Jewish little boy and girls know. They know about the time after God says, it's going to be Isaac. I'm going to bless the whole world through Isaac. This one is the promised one. And then every Jewish boy and girl knew the story about Abraham being told by God, take your son, the son of the promise, the son of your love. Take that son and you go offer him as a sacrifice at the place that I tell you. And then Abraham rises up early in the morning and he takes with him his son and his servants and they go for three days. It wasn't like God said, go around the corner and sacrifice your son. He says, take the son of your love, your only son, and you go to the place I tell you about and you go and it's a three-day journey. Three days. And Abraham just goes. And then Abraham takes his son and his son, the son of the promise, the son of his love, carries the wood to the place where Jewish boy and girl knew this thing. This is the son of the promise. This is the one you said the whole world's going to be blessed through. All the nations are going to be blessed through this one, Isaac, down to the Messiah. They knew it was coming. And here's Isaac, the one that was the promise the sacrifice, his love. And Abraham goes and they get to this mountain. And Isaac says, Dad, like the fire and the knife, but where's, where's the lamb? Where's the lamb, Father? Where's the lamb? And then Abraham says to Isaac, they knew the story, Abraham says to Isaac, God will provide for himself the lamb. And so then he binds his son Isaac, the son of, his prom the son of the promise, the son of his love, and he gets ready to take the knife to actually sacrifice his son. 
and you know that he believed that God had promised through Isaac he was going to bless the whole world, and so you know that he believed he was able even to raise him from the dead because he told the men that were with him, the boy and I will return to you. He knew God could raise the dead. He was being obedient. And then the angel of the Lord, which was actually Jesus, the messenger of the Lord appears and says, Abraham, don't do it. Don't harm, harm your son. I see that you fear God. And then what's amazing is that moment with this son of the promise, the son of his love, bound there, they see a ram caught in the thicket. Not a what? Not a lamb. What did, God, what did Abraham say God was going to provide? The lamb on that mountain. And what did they see? A ram. Not a lamb. And then Abraham names the place that they were. This is the place the Lord will provide it. And 2,000 years later, the Son of God's love, His only Son, the promised one, the promised seed and deliverer, was actually killed there. This is a testimony of God's faithfulness. And so when you see as a Jew who's raised in synagogue, son of David, that means he's got a right to the throne, son of Abraham, it means that he is a long-anticipated seed. To read the story, read Genesis 13, 15, 17, 18, 22, read the story that to see why this would have been so meaningful for a Jew. He's come. He's come. All the promises in God are yes and amen. He's here. Beauty from ashes. A couple things to note from this text. A couple things. Get back to Genesis, or Matthew chapter 1 to see this. Matthew chapter 1. <coughs> Let's look at the all-star list. <laughs> Beauty from ashes. God redeems. He takes the ugliest and he makes them beautiful. Matthew chapter 1. What's the problem as you start? Ready? Son of David is the bomb dignity. It is awesome. To be son of David meant you had the right to the throne. Imagine for a moment Jesus coming by a guy who's blind on the side of the road and the guy's going, Jesus, son of David, have mercy. It was considered a compliment to be called son of David. Imagine the day after David was confronted with his adultery and murder, bragging about someone being the son of David. Beauty from ashes. God heals. He heals the ugliest. And he turns someone like David, who's an adulterer and a murderer, in his own, and he's called a man after God's own heart. And God has the king, actually somebody that's from David. But look at the list. David, what is he? Adulterer, murderer. Abraham, what is he? Perfect? No. <laughs> He's got problems too. Move down the line, what do you have? Let's look in just verse 3. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. What's the problem? Oh, that's at verse 6. And Jesse, the father of David, David the murderer. What else? Next verse. And David was the king of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam. And you move down and you realize that as you get down the list, you also have what? Ruth and Rahab. Sorry. Ruth and Rahab. You have a Canaanite and a Moabite. What's the problem there? That's, that's halvesies. Right? That's Gentile blood mixed in the line. 
So what do you got? You've got a line of incest, you've got a line of adultery and murder, and you've got a line ultimately of mixing Gentile and Jewish. And this is supposed to be, ready? The all-star list. The all-star list. And then it gets worse as you get down to Josiah, verse 11, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation of Babylon, because you actually have a curse put on the line right there. So I wanted to say as we move into our picture here in a moment to show that how God has just redeemed this whole thing and how God displays His sovereignty, I want you to see something in this list. God can take the most broken of pasts, the ugliest of pasts, the, the past where you say, my dad was a drunk, my mom was a drunk, grandpa was a drunk, and this and that. He takes them and He turns them into beautiful acts of redemption. He has given us a record of His faithfulness, and I want you to see this. Okay, let's talk about this. Uh, let me get to, uh, the slide there, Colby, so I can show you this. All right, here's the deal. There's a little that people recognize as they read Matthew's genealogy and Luke's genealogy. What's the problem? The same. And so I story where I was on Mill Avenue one time. I was carrying my Bible with me. You should always bring your sword with you. Mill Avenue, and I had these two brothers come up to me dressed super nice, right? talking like suit and tie, and I found out they were like Farrakhan, like the Farrakhan, like Muslim, like militant, like Muslims. And they saw my Bible and said, hey, let me see your Bible. I said, yeah, it's a Bible. And they said, hey, you know what? Uh, George Bush is the Antichrist. <laughs> and I was like, this is going to be an interesting conversation. <laughs> and they were like, yeah, like 666. I said, what's that? They said, like 666. Like he, and they started trying to tell me how that spells George Bush. I was like, no, that's... 666, and it's actually Neron Kaiser, Nero Caesar. And so and they said, you don't even know your Bible's corrupted. Go ahead and show me where my Bible's corrupted. And they said, you got Matthew, and you got one in Luke. And I said, praise God, God. They said, no, no, praise God. It shows you your Bible's wrong. And I said, no, that actually shows you God's promises. It's actually quite majestic. Would you like me to show you? And I said, today, Matthew... And Luke, two different where to go. Matthew chapter 1, you see the first genealogy from Matthew. And then I want you to see, put your finger over Luke chapter... Actually, chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. Now, a couple... As you get there. The early church used to refer to Luke's genealogy, Mary's line. So the early was that Luke was actually a genealogy from Mary, whereas Matthew was through Joseph, that was his father, and that was a genealogy to the royal line. And so not only are you displaying this, but actually the text itself. Now, Matthew, we're going to show you is Joseph's genealogy, and Luke is actually... Couple things to just discuss as to how would that work out. Luke actually shows intimate acquaintance with details. No, and at the beginning of Luke, his gospel, listen closely to this. He said many had undertaken to eyewitness testimony, and that he had actually done this. And so you have actually Luke in Luke chapter two, and he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. When Jesus was at the temple, they had left him for days. And they went back and they got him. They're like, what are you doing? And he's like, I'm about my father's business, right? And they go home now. But listen to what he says. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. His mother treasured up all these things in her heart. 
Clearly, Luke has undertaken to get an eyewitness account of what actually happened in the life of Jesus. He took the testimonies of those who were with Jesus and he interviewed Mary, Jesus' mom. He's got details like Mary saying, and I treasured these things up in my heart. I just held on to them. And then you have this genealogy. Now, a quick thing to point out here is you look at Luke chapter 3. Look at verse 23, guys. That's where it starts. Look at verse... The last verse, verse 37. Where does it stop? Adam, son of God. Luke is giving you the list from where? Adam. From the first man. And Matthew, Bible, look at Matthew. Where does Matthew start? He starts at Abraham. So Matthew's beginning his genealogy and ends his genealogy with Adam, the first human being ever created. And interesting, look at Matthew and Luke, you'll see that the genealogies are actually quite different. And let's talk about it. If you look from Abraham, we're going to leave out Adam at the beginning of Luke's genealogy. Abraham goes to King David. Now you'll notice I've left out, <laughs> we're jumping ahead so you see the big bullet points here. Abraham to King David. Both Luke and Matthew bring their genealogies through David and Abraham. So both have David and Abraham. Okay. Now as you move over to the left side, this is Matthew's genealogy. To the right side is Luke's genealogy. I've colored the left side blue, so you can see that is the royal line. And the right side is actually red, just to show it's just inconsistency with Abraham and David. Now you need to catch this. It's pretty amazing. As you look at the line, you have to say, listen, you've got to be a descendant of Abraham and of what? David in order for you to be the Messiah. And if you look at the text, if you look at the text, in verse of Matthew chapter 1, verse 16, And Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Messiah. So whose genealogy is he giving us? Joseph's genealogy. Here's the question. What in the world do I need Joseph's genealogy for? Because it was a virgin birth. It's the next verse. Matthew 1.18 says it wasn't. Why in the world would I want to have Joseph's genealogy in the text? Why would Matthew want to give us Joseph's genealogy if he's not his real dad? Doesn't that work against you? Well, as you look through the genealogy, you'll notice something is that, listen, Joseph has Abraham as his grandfather somewhere in there. And he also has David. But you'll notice that, and look, look closely at the text here, after verse 6, where it says, David the king, it says, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. So, in Matthew's line, you've got to King David moving over to whom? Solomon. That's the royal line. Solomon was king over Israel. But guess what? David had another son. Who was his other son? Older than Solomon. Nathan. Now amazingly, if you look at Luke's gospel, his genealogy, guess who's in that line? Nathan. So Matthew and Luke actually have a departure from one another. Luke's genealogy goes through Nathan, son of David. Matthew's genealogy goes through Solomon. And the interesting thing here, ready? is that one of those lines is royal. But it moves down through time through King Solomon's line and the crown is next king and the next king. Are you ready? 
And it gets to a point in Jeremiah 22.30 where that line is cursed. And I want you to see a little bit of a hitch that's thrown into this line. And to do that, you've got to see it with your own eyes. 22. Go to it, guys. Mark the reference to see this. Jeremiah 22. And let's start in verse 28. And this man, Kaniah, a despised broken pot, a vessel no one cares for, why are he and his children hurt in a land that they do not know? O land, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless, a man who shall not succeed in his days. For none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. There's a problem, massive problem that only God is in control of. And check it out. Matthew's line moves through Abraham and King David to King Solomon, royal line. And then it moves down to a guy named Jeconiah. And in Jeremiah 22, a little bit of a hitch brought in here. And what's the problem? Is the line itself is cursed. Well, wait a minute. The line is already split off from David to a royal line. And God places a curse and says that no physical descendant of you is ever going to hold the throne. But that's the royal line. And the amazing thing is if you move over to the line over here by Nathan from David, you move down the line, and there's a little bit of a problem. What if, listen for a second, what if someone came today and they said, I can trace my genealogy all the way back through Nathan to David to Abraham. I am a descendant of David and Abraham. I can hold the throne. What's the problem? If you're from Nathan's side, what's the problem? It's not the royal line. And so if you were from Nathan and you said, hey, I'm a descendant of David, we go, great, kudos to you. Can't hold it. You're not royal. But let's say somebody actually came today and they said, well, wait a second, I actually bring my line all the way through Solomon, King Solomon, to David and to Abraham. What would we say to them? Kudos to you. Can't hold it. Why? It's cursed. Cursed, Jeremiah 22. How in the world are you going to get out of this twisted situation? One line is physically from David, but what's the problem? It's not royal. And one line is actually royal, but what's the problem? It's How are you going to solve the problem? G here, Joseph. Joseph is a He actually has the royal right to the throne. But guess what? He's the adopted Jesus. Actually passes on to Jesus the right to the throne without passing on the physical Joseph. And Mary's line over here, after three, actual physical mother of Jesus, flesh and blood, and she goes back through Nathan, dodging the curse to David and to Abraham. So guess what? God has actually worked out history in such a way someone could be the Messiah is if they were born of a virgin. And this is why in Matthew, after Matthew gives a gene of Joseph, showing that Jesus has the right to the throne, the actual royal right to the throne, this is why Matthew, as soon as he gives you the genealogy, in Matthew 1.18 tells you the story of Jesus, who's the son of Mary, through a virgin birth. That 
is glorious. These two genealogies, far from showing an inconsistency, actually scream at us. Jesus is the Messiah. There is no other way. <coughs> and we look at a situation like this in this family line, and we look at the fact that it doesn't make any sense, and we look at the fact that a royal line is cursed, and you're like, how's that ever going to happen? Only God. Only a sovereign God can move history along. Say something to you? Guess when that happened? Babylon. That's about 600 years. So when did this wrench get thrown into the story? About 600 years before Christ. Only God can write history in this way. It's his. And this is a glorious picture here of God's faithfulness. And I, I wanted you guys to see that because it's amazing to display that, listen, in the Old Testament, you've got God saying that God himself, Isaiah 9, You've got Isaiah 53, the whole story of Jesus, Him being pierced through for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, the chastening for our well-being upon Him, and by His wounds we are healed, that God Himself was going to have the Messiah crushed for our iniquities, and that He was going to raise Him from the dead, that He would justify the many bearing their iniquities. That's all long before Jesus comes. Psalm 22 gives you the passion of Christ about a thousand years before it actually occurs. The birthplace of Jesus, the where, the who, the why, the what, the when, everything is there. <clears throat> but beyond that, as a step above, is God has displayed His faithfulness in the genealogy of Jesus. This genealogy counts. It is absolutely amazing. God has kept His promise. Matthew is so concerned to show you that Jesus is the King. It's the punch for Here's where we need to see this going. You'll notice something in Matthew, and I want you to keep observing it as it comes up. You'll notice that Matthew keeps referring to the good news of the kingdom. The good news of the kingdom. He calls something the kingdom of heaven, which the other Gospels refer to as the kingdom of God. And what you need to see here is this, is this story here is God's story of His redemption in history. And are you ready for this? It includes you. If you've turned to Christ and trusted in Him, you are a record of God's faithfulness. You are a record of God's faithfulness. None of us should be in this room trusting in Jesus as Messiah right now. None of us should be under the hearing of this word. The Bible says there's none righteous, not even one, none who seeks for God, hearing about the story of God's faithfulness. This is a record of God's faithfulness. Are you ready? And you are a record of God's faithfulness. The story of your life is a record of God's faithfulness. Not only did He turn beauty from ashes here in this text, but He's done it in this room. If you've turned from sin to trust in Christ, beauty from ashes, life from death, you are a testimony to the world of God's promise. In this room right now, listening to the story of a Jewish Messiah, there's a room full of people from different parts of the world, people in this room representing different tribes, tongues, nations. This room is colorful, and that is beautiful. Because this room being so colorful is a record of God's covenant keeping. Children of Abraham, you've been joined to him through faith. He died, he was buried, and he rose again and conquered death as promised. That's what he said he was going to do, and he did it. And can I give you a promise? Jesus says in John 5.24, that seed, that promised king, said in John 5.24, he says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my voice and believes him who sent me has eternal life. 
and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. And you ask the question, does he keep his promises? Can I trust that? Does he know what a wreck I am? Does he know that I'm an adulterer and a liar? Does he know that I'm a thief? Does he know that I'm wicked? Does he know that I'm unfaithful? Does he know that I'm not strong? Does he know that I'm not courageous? Does he know that I'm foul every day of my life? Does he know this? Yes, he knows. And he saved you knowing all about you before he did it. He keeps his promises. Can you trust this God? At every turn of your life, he is standing in front of you with his faithfulness. And tonight, digging into Matthew's gospel, you're just having the testimony of God's covenant keeping shout to you. Can you trust Him? Yes. All of His promises are yes and amen. And I don't care what the wreckage in your life is. I don't care what your past was. I don't care what your present is. If you trust this Messiah, you're joined to the very one who has given us this record. He is that kind of... And you are to see, and I am to see in this record, His persistent, consistent, and never-ending faithfulness. His mercy endures forever. His love throughout all generations. He is the covenant-keeping God. And all I want to say to you is this. Trust Him. And what is our role now as believers having this record? Is to go now and proclaim to the world the good news of the kingdom. The king has come. We're not waiting for a kingdom. Do you hear that? We are not waiting for a kingdom. We're not waiting for a day for Jesus to finally arrive as the king. He said that he was king. He proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom. He promised that he fulfilled the prophet coming king. Our job now is to proclaim to the world, he is Lord. He is king. He is seated. All who turn to him have life in his name. And the world needs to hear from us the same warning that comes from God in Psalm 2. It says, obey the son or you will perish when his wrath is kindled. The promise is right now, where are we? Is that Jesus is seated, reigning, putting his enemies under his feet. You say, what kind of enemies? Enemies like us. Enemies like us. And we now have this treasure, is that we're not telling each other, someday, we're telling the world now, done, over, turn to him for life. That's the story. And that is glorious. There's no better story. You can't beat this story. You can't beat it. It's exciting and glorious and it needs to be something that's on our lips to our kids constantly. We don't celebrate it enough. We just don't. I don't. I fail in it. I know we fail in this as, as, as Christians. I know we do. We do not celebrate the fact that the king has come and is reigning now like we ought to. They were waiting for it. We've got it. Now let's tell the world. Amen? Amen? Let's tell the world, guys. Let's pray. Father, I pray you bless, Lord, the message that went out for your glory. I pray that it leads to the exaltation of Christ in the world. And I pray with all my heart that by you, Lord, this small little church, God, would be used by you, grace, Lord Christ that you, Lord, would expand your kingdom through the work that you do here, through the lives and work and ministry of the people that are here that you've drawn out of the world.
Lord, would you work in the hearts of those that are here right now, bringing conviction over sin and faith in Christ. And for those of us that are yours, God, we belong to you. I pray that, Lord, right now you, you would meet us in a, in a way, Lord, we would cast aside everything that hinders our fellowship with you and our joy in you. I pray right now you meet us and you challenge us, Lord God, Lord, that you have over to you. And I pray us to bring our eyes up to you, to rejoice in you, Lord, and to just savor you, God, and to bring you praise. Bless, Lord, the rest of this worship, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Communion, great, great moment for us. Jesus, the night of his betrayal, he gave us the cup and the bread. And he said, referring to the bread, that it was his body broken for us, and of the cup, that it was the blood of the new covenant poured out for many for the remission of sins. And so as believers, we come to this table every week. Jesus says, when you come together, do this in remembrance of me. So this is a memorial of what Jesus accomplished for his people. And the table we have always open to those who have turned from sin to trust in Christ. If you don't know him now, know this, that he is the Messiah, the righteous one. He died for sinners. He was buried and he rose from the dead. And he promises the gift of eternal life, forgiveness, and salvation to all who turn from sin, to trust in Him. Abandon all. Abandon your righteousness. Abandon your... Come to Him naked. Come to Him with nothing to offer. Come to Him with faith, trusting in what He accomplished. If you don't know Jesus right now and have salvation and forgiveness of sins, you can turn to Him from where you sit right now. And you can come take the table. If you're a believer, please prepare your heart before you come. And let's worship Jesus tonight. Amen? In this table. Let me pray. Father, I pray you bless us as a church and your people. I pray right now, God, that you'd bless, Lord, us as we come before you. I pray that you would challenge us in our hearts. God, I pray you convict us, Lord. Help us, Lord, to see what we've been holding on to, Lord. Cause us to turn to you with joy in the forgiveness we have in you. Meet us in this place, God. And let us come to this table in a way, Lord, that remembers just how much you love us. And let us come in a way that celebrates, God, your wondrous, amazing grace. In Jesus' name, amen.